RUF is a safe place. We want it to be a safe place for anyone and everyone, whether you agree or disagree, to be here, to hear what we have to say, to hear what the Bible has to say. And the way that we do that is by going straight to the Word itself. So, if you want to read in your handout, you want to read in your Bible yourself, I'm going to start the first two verses, or the last couple of verses of chapter Luke chapter 4, verse 42. When it was day, he departed, and he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, And they would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I'm going to skip to verse 12 of chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he what had been lying what he'd been lying lying on and went home glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. If you're paying attention to the clip, maybe it was familiar to you. February 22nd, 1980, 
the miracle on ice is what it's known as. Uh, the United States Olympic hockey team did the impossible. They accomplished one of the greatest upsets in sports history when they defeated the big bad Soviet Union 4-3 to in the Olympics. And very soon after, the Soviet Union crumbled. Coincidence? I think not. Um, forever... That moment forever immortalized by the great Al Michaels, one of my favorite football commentators. If you're listening uh, to the commentary, he said, do you believe in miracles? Yes. It's a great line. I love it. Um, They made a movie about it. It was called Miracle. Isn't that great? I don't know. When you think about miracles, when you hear miracles, I don't know what that does for you. I don't know what that makes you think about. I don't know what that brings to mind. I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable. I don't know if that comforts you. Uh, Perhaps miracles to you is what you grew up with. I mean, I grew up with Jesus. Jesus did miracles. That makes sense. For some of you, that's the case. Perhaps uh, when you think of miracles, it's something that used to be pretty cool, but actually it's lost its luster a little bit because of its familiarity or because Christians are so quick to very casually just kind of throw it out there. Perhaps you're too rational for miracles. Perhaps you know too much for miracles. Perhaps you're too much of a science man for miracles. That may be you tonight. Perhaps you prayed for one. And all you got was a cold silence. And miracles actually make you angry. That could very well be you tonight. The thing about miracles, I think, it's safe to say, all of us have some thought. All of us have some thought about miracles. Uh, Maybe a miracle is one thing that will finally give you assurance, right? This thing you so desperately long for. Or maybe miracles are just child's play to you. We're asking the question this semester, Doctor Who, because Luke wants us to know, wants us to have certainty about who this Jesus is. And tonight what he tells us, for better or worse... Jesus did miracles. But here's the thing. We weren't there. <laughs> so why does it matter for us? Why, you know, why, what does that have to do with us? Everything. Everything. Three points, as I am prone to do, and I give a nod to my campus minister, Les Newsom, uh, just because these points... I stole the titles of the points because I like them. Uh, reality of miracles, the reason for miracles, the results of miracles. So the first thing here is the reality of miracles, okay? Um, and this is a nod. If you've never read Tim Keller's The Reason for God, I urge you, I implore you, I do all those strong words for you to go out tonight and buy that thing on Kindle or wherever you can find it and read it. It is one of the, it's a great book. Whether you're a firm believer, whether you're the most seasoned skeptic, it is a good book because he deals with objections to Christianity and things like miracles, uh, and he also makes the case for Christianity uh, there for you to deal with it. And I'm stealing straight from his chapter on miracles tonight, okay? So you can just take that to the bank. Here's the thing. Christianity is not unique in its belief in miracles, Right? We know this, don't we? Uh, and I love C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis's definition of miracles in his book, Miracles. He says this, I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by a supernatural power. Let me read that because this is what I'm, uh, the definition I'm using. I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by a supernatural power. But again, that is not uniquely Christian. 
It's not unique to the Christian faith, and it's not really unique to religious uh, to religions uh, in general either. Okay. Um, however, accepting miracles as they come to us in the Bible as true is foundational to Christianity. Accepting the miraculous as it comes to us in the Bible, accepting that as true is foundational to Christianity. For starters, the foundational historical truth claim of Christianity is that its founder and its savior was God himself who took on flesh, lived a 30-something year life, died, and then was raised again from the dead. That was a miracle, all of it. And it is the foundation of the religion itself. It's the foundation of the faith itself. And you are not what the Bible calls a Christian if you do not believe in that miracle. I'm not going to back down from that. But, again, so what do we do with these little miracles, maybe, that come to us, right? Well... I think because the foundational miracle, the greatest miracle of all time is foundational to the Christian faith. When we find the miracles recorded here, it is also central to Christian doctrine to take them as fact, truth, fact, as historical, as actual interjections of the supernatural into our world. That is how they are presented to us plainly as you read the Bible, okay? And for some of you, that might seem quite obvious because you've grown up with it and you just know that, right? And you maybe you've not really given much thought to it, but yeah, okay, that makes sense. For others of you, you know all too well that that's not a popular view today. You know all too well that actually there's a lot of people that would dispute that and argue with me over that. Because actually... Disbelief in miracles or rejection of miracles in any shape or form, religious or not, um, is actually in vogue. It's the mainstream of our culture. Um, So this is how it goes. This is usually how the sentiment goes. Science has disproven miracles. Because of where we are in our cultural historical moment, science is so advanced. We've gone through so much over the last few hundred years. Science has disproven miracles. And we have to deal with this um, at the outset before we can move on. Has it? Science has disproven miracles. I just suggest to you this question that you really need to think about. Has it? (laughs) Has it really? Okay? Okay, it is natural... It is scientific to look at the natural world and look for natural causes. That is natural. That is scientific. Christianity supports that. Christianity is not in opposition of that. Christianity does not deny that. But what is the statement science has disproven miracles really mean? What is that really saying? It's one thing to say science can and does tell us about natural causes to natural phenomena. But what are you saying if you say science, with its explanation of natural phenomena, cannot explain supernatural phenomena, therefore supernatural phenomena cannot exist? I can't believe I got that out without stumbling over it. (laughs) I'm impressed with myself. Anyway, um, that's what I was just telling you. What are you saying if you say that science, with its explanations of natural phenomena, cannot explain supernatural phenomena, therefore supernatural phenomena cannot exist? This is where I'm going to take it apart. First, think of it this way. Can you even test that statement? 
Can you scientifically test or prove that statement? Can you test the statement that no supernatural cause, that, that there is no supernatural cause for any natural phenomena? Can you test that statement? No, you cannot, because it's not a scientific statement. It's a ph- philosophical presupposition. All of you just fell asleep when I said that. It is a philosophical presupposition. Meaning you've taken the rug of science out from under you and you've entered a whole nother realm of study. Philosophy, not science. But second, think, of the, think, think about it this way. It's one thing to say that there's no scientific explanation for supernatural phenomena. It's a wholly different thing to say that because there is no scientific explanation, that it cannot happen. Because when you say that, what you're saying is natural causes are the only explanation for things that we experience and see. Are you prepared to make that statement? Maybe you are, and that's fine. But are you prepared to make that statement? Alvin Plantinga, nobody you really care about, but he's, a, he's an apologist, and he makes, he makes this point about that argument. He says this. The perfect illustration to that argument is this. It's like the drunk person in downtown who insists on looking for their lost keys only under the street lamp. I love this illustration. On the grounds that you can see better there. In other words, what you're saying is that because the keys would be hard or near impossible to find in the dark, they must be under the light. I think that illustration is dead on. Think about, think about this for yourself. How much information scientifically would you have to have in order to claim that there has never been a miracle? How much information scientifically would you have to have to make the claim that there has never been a miracle? Les Newsom puts it like this. You would have to have examined exhaustively every factor in every event at every moment in human history. Which, by the way, the scientist, by definition, has no such perspective. Has science... Disproven Christianity. Now look, I've just laid a lot out there really quickly and I can't back it all up. Like, I can't expound all of that. I just have to leave it there. But here, let me round it off with, with like this. Thank you. She's making fun of me using my hands. Anyway, um, hidden in the statement that there cannot be miracles. Hidden in that statement, whether you explicitly acknowledge it or not, is this. There is no God who can do miracles. Hidden in the statement, there are no miracles, is the belief, is, the, is behind that the presupposition that there is not or cannot be a God who does miracles. Why? Because think about this. If there is a God, which the Bible says, if there is a God who created all things, which the Bible says, if there is a God who created all things out of nothing, which the Bible says... It is perfectly logical and every bit rational to suppose that he can interrupt the natural order of which he created at any time he pleases. Am I saying that I'm proving it to you? No. But I am telling you it is perfectly rational. It is perfectly logical. 
the reality, that all, all of that, <laughs> if we can breathe now, that is the reality of miracles according to the Bible. Look at verse 26. I love this. Verse 26 of chapter 5. They've, all these people are seeing all this going on and they say, we have seen extraordinary things today. I tried to read it with emphasis. What they say is, we have seen extraordinary things today. The, literal, the Greek word is paradoxa. Sound familiar? Paradox. What they are saying is we have seen things that are out of the ordinary today. People in Jesus' day were not blind, stupid fools Even they knew or believed that miracles did not make sense. There's that. The reality of miracles. Now, let's move on. The reason for miracles. Because there's actually another huge reason that people have trouble when it comes to thinking about miracles. There's a complete misconception across the board, whether religious or not, whether Christian or not. There's a complete misconception across the world as to why and or how Jesus did miracles. Okay? But look. Look at what Jesus does here. If you have your Bibles, you see at the beginning of chapter 5 um, is Jesus with Peter in his fishing boat before he's called him to be a disciple. And they've been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. Um, and, he, and it's in the middle of the day and he says, cast your net overboard. And Peter's like, you're joking me. And so he ends up doing it anyway and they haul in this like ridiculous amount of fish. So that's the first miracle of chapter 5. Then we see him healing a leper that everybody else would have stayed away from. Then we see him healing a paralytic, a paralytic who only some people would have known was truly paralyzed. Not everybody would have necessarily known that he was for real. In a sense, think about this. In a sense, Jesus' miracles, if you read through the Gospels, especially the really public ones, are tame at best. Think about that. Jesus never does a miracle where everybody in the presence just goes, oh, well, he's the son of God. It never happens. Think about this. If you had unlimited power, if you were the son of God, if you were the one by whom, for whom, through whom are all things, don't you think you could have come up with some bigger things to do than Jesus did? Don't you? I mean, I... There's a mountain. Boom. It's gone. Where did it go? It's behind your ear. You know, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I'm lost. Do you think, do you think you might have wanted to do just a little more than Jesus did? Or if you were with him, if you were one of his disciples, wouldn't you have said, Jesus, come on, man. Just point your finger over there and do something magical. But if you read through the Gospels, this is important to note, and we could spend a whole night just on this point alone. The majority of what the Gospels write about Jesus' public ministry was not miracles. The vast majority of what the Gospel writers write about is not miracles. It's not the biggest part of the New Testament. It is a part, it is a vital part of Jesus' public ministry, but it's not the sum total. Read, that's why I read for you the last couple of verses of chapter 4. Look at him again with me. When it was day, he departed. He went into a desolate place. The people sought him, and they came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. What purpose was he sent for? To preach. How do you like that? I like it. It's my job. Um... 
Over and over again, we see Jesus' miracles, what in our view should have been the showstoppers, constantly recede to the background of Jesus' preaching and his teaching. What does John spend more and more about than any other of the Gospels? And this, he, John wrote the Gospel the latest, somewhere around uh, 80, 90 AD. And the majority of his Gospel is taken up with the red letters, right? Jesus' words. What is this telling us? What did he say? What, he's, what this is telling us is that the reason for Jesus' miracles are fundamentally and intimately united with his mission and his message. Fundamentally and intimately united with his mission and his message. What did he say in verse 43? I have come for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom. Jesus started his ministry. What did he say? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He started preaching the kingdom. Miracles in the Bible, in the Gospels specifically, always serve as signs pointing to the truth of a better, higher kingdom that has broken through in the here and now. They are never the ends, but always a means. They're never just for show. Jesus never just says, look what I can do. Never. Look at uh, verses 23 and 24. When he's dealing with the paralytic here. He says to these people that are kind of questioning what he's done. He says, what is easier for me to say to this guy? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. Well, think about that. Sins are forgiven. That's actually the easier thing to say because you can't prove one way or another if it's true or not. I said it's true. How about that? And it was. Or rise up and walk. That takes guts because if you say it and he doesn't get up, then you're proving a fraud. So what does Jesus do? He does it. But, look at verse 24. Why does he do it? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell this man, rise and go. What is Jesus saying the central part of that story is? The fact that this man's sins are now forgiven. That's what's miraculous to Jesus. But to prove that he is what he says he is, He does the miracle. He does the sign. Miracles demonstrate something profound about the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And it also tells us something profound about the one who is bringing it. And the miracles always serve that purpose and that purpose only. That's about the temptation of the bread. Remember, we talked about the temptations. Jesus was hungry. He could have turned a stone to bread. No one would have known about it. But he never did anything to serve himself. It was always a sign of something else. Think about this. You ever wonder, I got loud. You ever wonder why um, the Pharisees, you know, they come after Jesus time and time again. They're seeing Jesus do this stuff. They watch him tell a paralyzed man, get up and walk, and the guy does it, okay? You ever wonder why the Pharisees over and over again are so antagonistic? They see what happens, and they still are so antagonistic, and they do not like Jesus. Why? Because the miracles are intimately and fundamentally tied to his mission and his message, and that's what they hate. They hate the mission and they hate the message and the miracles do nothing for them. That's it. You see, we have to see 
these miracles. We have to have these miracles. We need them today. Even though we were not there, even though they do not directly affect us, we need them because they point us to the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he came to do, and the truth of who he came for. This is why when you turn it on TBN and you read the little thing, you send $40 in, I'll send you a little vial of my sweat that while I was preaching. And when you get it, you're going to make A pluses for the rest of your college career. You've seen that one, right? It's an infomercial. You turn it on TBN, you see these faith healers. The reason they are so full of it is not because their miracles are a fraud. It's because their message is a fraud. Because they've completely missed the message of Jesus. And the gospel and the Bible. Last one here. And this is the biggest one. The result of the miracles. The reality of miracles, we've got the reason for miracles. What about the result? What does it do? What does it bring about? Two things. And the first one is this. The first thing that, the, that results from the miracles is that Jesus addresses our deepest needs. Jesus addresses our deepest needs. Look at all three of these. Look at the leper. He's not just a leper. He's full of leprosy. He's full of leprosy. Now imagine for a moment, just imagine for one moment, that somebody walks through this back door that we all know. And we all know that this person has been in Liberia for the last three months. And they've just touched down in Atlanta an hour and a half ago and they drove straight here and they walked straight into RUF. And they walk in and they are obviously and clearly sweaty with fever and runny with cough. What is every single person in this room going to do? You're going to go that way, I promise you. If you're paying attention to the news, please tell me everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Ebola. Read the news. Anyway, every single one of you is going to run that way. Not because we don't love the person. Not because we think that person's terrible. We don't want to die. Fair enough? Think about what the think about think about the story because some of these stories are so familiar to us, especially us those of us that grew up in the church. Right? Think about this. This man is violating every single social convention as he comes into crowds of people to find Jesus. Okay, imagine the gasp, the whispers, the scurrying as he made his way through the crowds, through the town to get to wherever Jesus was. It would have been a sight. This is how Leviticus, the, the, book of, the big long book of boring laws in the Old Testament that are actually really important, really important though. Levit- Leviticus 13, 45, uh, verse 46, 40, 45 and 46. Um, this is how it deals with le- le- people with leprosy. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and he will cry out, unclean, unclean. He had to go around and scream out to people like a robot. Get away from me, basically. Verse 46, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Okay? That sounds harsh to us. I'm going to roll tonight. That sounds harsh to us. But who, upon exiting a restaurant bathroom, seeing the sign, all employees must wash their hands, who, in their, who, who sees that and goes, man, this place must be a hard place to work for? If you think the lepers, if you think the lepers' actions are outrageous, look at what Jesus does. 
look at what Jesus does. If you read chapters 4 and 5, Luke makes one thing very clear. Jesus is doing all these miracles and exorcisms of demons by the power of his word. But what does he do with the leper? Y'all, he touches him. He stretches out his hand and touches him. He did not have to do that. This man was not just ill. He was an outcast of every shape and form. Physically outside the city. Socially outcast from his community and his family. Spiritually outcast from the temple and the people of God. Jesus was not just touching his his leprosy and restoring his skin. He was touching and restoring his whole person. Think about how desperate this man had to be to march into the city knowing that the rightful thing that the crowd should have done was stone him on the spot so nobody would be infected. Talking walking dead type stuff here, right? Yeah, I just got you back on that one. Jesus touches him and restores his whole person. Think about how much touch communicates, right? I made this joke to Abby Henry earlier, um, but it was already in my sermon. Guys, there's a girl that you dig, right? We all know that a side hug is the worst thing ever. (laughs) Friend zone, and you're there for life. Sorry. But more seriously, we all love, y'all ever seen those videos of the young children that are deaf, that get cochlear implants, and they hear their parents' voices for the first time? We watch those videos over and over again because it melts us. It makes us feel so good. Jesus does this for this man. Probably not been touched or seriously talked to for years. Jesus could have just said, you're well, get on. But he touches him. There's hope. The hope there for us is this. Jesus is going to deal with your whole person. If Jesus comes into your life, he is going to deal with your whole person. And he isn't worried about getting his hands dirty. He really is able to deal with your junk that nobody else knows about. And there is nothing that he is afraid to touch. Y'all, some of you so, so badly just need to listen to that for a minute and believe it and hold on to it. And then so many more of us need to take it to heart that this is how Jesus reaches people. And this is how we are supposed to reach people. It's one thing to go up to someone that you do not know and have never met and hand them a piece of paper and walk away. God could use that. I'm not saying that. It's a whole other thing to enter into someone's life and their needs and their insecurities and their muck and their junk. It's exactly what Jesus does with the leper. Look at the paralytic. The paralytic... 
what he does with the paralytic is he tells us this. Our greatest need, our greatest existential need is to be right with God. Imagine the scene. Again, a jam-packed house. There's no moving around. You can't move in. You can't move out. There's so many people. They just want to be around Jesus. They just want to listen to him. They just want to see what's going on. Suddenly, the roof begins to open. Tiles are being moved back. Sunlight's maybe pouring through. Uh, dirt is falling through on people's heads and Bibles or whatever. Or scrolls, I guess. Um, and it's like an angel from heaven coming down in like one of those cheap church plays, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And everybody is expecting another healing. It's just another day at the office for Jesus. And we're so familiar with the story that what Jesus does just completely runs straight past us. Look at what he says. Man, your sins are forgiven you. What? Our greatest need is to be right with God. Our greatest problem is our sin. It's not what grades you're making. It's not where you go to school. It's not that your parents are fighting. It's not that your high school didn't prepare you well enough for college. Whatever it is you think it is, it's not it. Your greatest problem is your sin because we are all sick. Look at verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That is who Jesus says he came for. And if you are not sick, Jesus is not for you. Sammy Rhodes, some of you know him as Prodigal Sam. He also happens to be an RUF campus minister at the University of South Carolina. He wrote a little article called, College Doesn't Change Your Heart, It Reveals It. I love this article. In it, he quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis talking about how he became a Christian uh, and how he began to see his own sin for the first time. This is what he said. This is what C.S. Lewis said. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. There I found what appalled me. A zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. And that sounds so morbid to us, but C.S. Lewis is talking about how he became a Christian. Like the happiest time of his life. It's weird. Sammy Rhodes goes on to say, It's not college that changes your heart so much as reveals it. It isn't the secularity or the immorality that's to be feared. feared. According to Jesus, it's the propensity of our hearts to either want the wrong things or to anchor them in the wrong places. Y'all, we are sick. (laughs) And we need a doctor. Your generation... Uh, is very much into social justice, meeting the needs of the poor, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, all kinds of trips and volunteer opportunities that all of y'all take advantage of. Um, And those are great things, and they do the world a great deal of good. But what is true of each of these miracles that Jesus does? Even the raising of Lazarus from the dead, what was true of that one as well? They're temporary This man very well could have gotten leprosy again before he died. This man very well could have fallen off a cliff and been paralyzed again. Lazarus died again. What that tells us is that all of our efforts are superficial at best if this, our greatest eternal need, is not addressed and met. That's it. 
Levi. That's the final one here. Perhaps the greatest miracle of the whole bunch. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth. Okay, y'all? They were traitors. They were viewed as traitors because they worked for Rome. They were viewed as unclean because they spent a lot of time with Gentiles. They were viewed as thieves because they abused their power and took more money than they had to. People hated tax collectors. You notice that when Jesus goes to eat at Matthew's house, who's, who's there? They're all tax collectors because they're the only friends that they have. The first two, either the person comes to Jesus or the person was brought to Jesus. The last one, the worst one of the bunch, Jesus goes after him. Jesus performed a miracle going after and making a scoundrel like Levi part of his inner circle. By the way, that same same Levi went on to write a gospel. His name is Matthew. To top it all off, he sits down and eats with him and his friends, who are all tax collectors. For Jews, sitting down for a meal was a sign of spiritual fellowship, saying, I spiritually think you are okay. That is why the Pharisees are up in arms. But think about this. With this leper... And with this tax collector, Jesus was showing that his kingdom was going to be a place for those who used to be on the outside to be in. Over and over and over again, Jesus goes for those traditionally on the out so that he can bring them in. We say, I say every single week that we want this to be a safe place. Does that mean it always is? No. Because everybody in here is screwed up and we screw up. But what, what would it mean? What would it actually mean for this to be a safe place for everybody? What would that mean? What would that look like? At the very least, it means acknowledging, all of us acknowledging, that we, none of us, all of us, are far from having it all together. We need something. Lastly and quickly, I ran out of time, I'm sorry. But this is it. This is the last thing. What all of this shows us, at first it shows us how Jesus addresses our deepest needs. But finally, it shows us how Jesus would ultimately do that. How he would actually ultimately do that through the greatest miracle of all time. We're so prone to think of miracles as just suspensions of the natural order. We're so prone to think that a miracle would be the final definitive proof that I need. But read the story for yourself over and over and over again. Some believe, some don't. Some worship Jesus because of what he does. Some hate him because of what he does. Some of you think, Man, just anything, if God would just show up in my life, why would that necessarily do something for you? Because there are tons of people over and over again in this book. We looked last week at his hometown that saw and heard Jesus do things in the flesh. And they thought he was full of it. Think about the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. Suspensions of the natural order, yes, but ultimately what they are is restorations of the natural order. You see, God did not make the world to contain disease, sickness, and death. 
And Jesus comes to redeem every single place where it went wrong. And he comes to heal every single place where it's broken. In other words, these miracles are to give us, whether we believe them or not, foretaste of a world that all of us so desperately dream of. And how exactly was going to do that? Here it is. He touches the leper. He forgives the paralytic. And he dines with the tax collector. That's how he's doing it. And the thing is, is that Jesus knew exactly what it would cost. Touch the leper. I'll become unclean for you. So that you can be clean. Forgive the paralytic. I will be broken for you. So that you can be made whole. Fellowship with the scoundrel. I'll be despised and hated and rejected so that you never will be again. Something interesting happens in Luke chapter 10. Jesus gives all his disciples the power to do miracles and they go out and they do them. And they all come back to him and they're very happy. You'd be happy too, right? And Jesus says something utterly amazing in verse 20 of chapter 10. He says this. Do not rejoice that spirits are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Is that something that you can rejoice in tonight? It might take a miracle, but here's the good news, as Luke tells us. Jesus did miracles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracle that you haven't forgotten us. The miracle that you've not rejected us. The miracle that you have not turned away from us. But rather, you have run headlong back into the fray just to be with us. Father, we need to know that and we need it. Because we need to be healed. We need a miracle. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.